From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. By day and by night, protests and a police response that feel very different. Denver's mayor on his next steps. Then why one woman who lost a loved one in Denver's jail fears nothing will change. Also, weeks from a primary election, what the Democratic Senate candidates are saying about this tumultuous time. And later, a Hispanic family hit hard by COVID-19. Manuel Aragon's brother had it. His uncle just died from it. My brother is an essential worker. My uncle lived among essential workers. And I think my brother catching it and uncle catching it, just off of what we know, it kind of felt inevitable. Aragon fears the economic effects of the pandemic will speed up gentrification. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After a weekend of both peaceful protests and of destruction, of curfews descending and being disobeyed, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock is on the line. And Mayor, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be with you. You indeed instituted a curfew Saturday and Sunday nights. Many people broke it. Will you call for another tonight? Yeah, I don't think we had an option but to extend the uh, curfew. We're working on what the parameters of that curfew will be, uh, but certainly the actions of uh, individuals from um, Saturday night and, and last night don't really give us much option. It's an important tool for law enforcement and uh, for our community try to and trying to restore order. Okay, so there will be a curfew tonight. It sounds like you can't say what the exact contours of that will be, though. Correct. Okay. We will, we're, there will be a curfew extension. Uh, we are working on what the, the parameters will be. With so many people breaking curfew, without impunity, I know there were some arrests, but, you know, many more people were uh, moving about the city. What does it achieve? Well, Ryan, I don't know what you mean by many people breaking curfew. I can tell you that what we see is that, for the most part, law-abiding um, residents and citizens of Denver went home uh, during the 8 o'clock uh, curfew. Um, and, but exactly what uh, you could anticipate, those who would not care what the president, the governor, the mayor, the police chief says and are hell-bent on, uh, being provocative and promoting uh, destruction and violence and engagement with law enforcement, they weren't going to listen. And uh, it exposed them just as we thought it would. It would show who these people are and exactly what they're bent on, hell bent on. Nothing they did after curfew had anything to do with George Floyd or the message of the peaceful demonstrators. Um, and so this is a chance to say to all the, the uh, law abiding uh, residents and citizens who came into the city of Denver or who lived here at 8 o'clock, who went home and abided by the order, thank you. And thank you for demonstrating peacefully. Uh, Thank you for not putting uh, yourselves and other demonstrators and our law enforcement in uh, danger. And thank you for not destructing the property of uh, the city of Denver. So uh, we'll keep it in place. We'll continue to give uh, the law enforcement uh, a very important tool uh, to try to maintain order. Surely, though, you saw some of the footage from last night, and there were people out after curfew who were simply marching, protesting in Denver, and for whom I have to think George Floyd was top of mind. You're painting an awfully broad uh, picture there with an awfully broad brush about those who might have broken curfew. What I'm painting is 
we know that after 8 o'clock, right around 8.30, um, a, a brick was hurled at the police officers. And uh, before then, the demonstrations had been very peaceful. Uh, before then, the officers uh, maintained the perimeter of the, the uh, demonstration uh, as we had planned. Um, yeah, we watched about every, uh, every minute of the, of the demonstration. And unfortunately, again, there are a minority of people who decided that uh, after uh, they're going to test the boundaries of the city's resolve around the curfew, they're going to test the resolve and restraint of police officers to stand still. I'm not painting a broad brush against the demonstrators. I believe a vast majority of demonstrators are, are good people uh, who have demonstrated for the right reason. When the demonstration was over, they went home. Um, unfortunately, um, they have also unwittingly served as a veil for people who are hell-bent on bringing destruction and trying to provoke violence and response from law enforcement. And also, unfortunately, there's a minority of, of even peaceful demonstrators who want to stand around and watch and see what happens. And unfortunately, they get caught in the cop fire, crossfire and the, the uh, reaction of law enforcement trying to protect themselves, demonstrators, and property. So uh, unfortunately, it's not a good situation any way you look at it. And uh, our goal is to restore order and to uh, restore our city. The AP reports, according here, U.S. officials sought to determine Sunday whether extremist groups had infiltrated police brutality protests across the country and deliberately tipped largely peaceful demonstrations toward violence. Uh, Mayor Hancock, do you have evidence that in Denver, protests are being used as a cover for agitators whose mission is something other than stopping police brutality? You know, at the right time, we'll talk about that, but we have received intelligence that indeed uh, we know some groups, some subversive groups have tried to embed themselves in uh, the de- peaceful demonstrations. Um, and quite frankly, when the curfews have gone into effect, not only in Denver, but across the country, and you got to know that I am on a uh, mass communication with mayors all over the country from New York to L.A., even those who didn't have curfews have now implemented curfews following some of us who have implemented them earlier um, because as the fight, the night falls, um, we see um, these, these, this element rise up out of these demonstrations because the peaceful demonstrators are gone home. It's those who decided that, again, no matter what the, the, the authorities say, what law enforcement says or does, they're hell-bent on pressing the limits. Um, and so, yeah, we believe that there is some, some of that. Um, we'll, hopefully at one point we'll be able to talk more specifically about it. Um, but our goal is to, to try to deal effectively with them and keep everyone safe. Is that intelligence you're getting from the FBI, uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force? What's your source on that, can you say? At the right time. No, not right now. I don't, I, you know, no one's told me I cannot say it, but until I am, uh, I received a thorough briefing. Um, I don't want to put it out there. I can tell you that it's from a cross-section of law enforcement uh, from every level of government that we have uh, understanding that uh, not only from in Denver, but across the nation, uh, this type of activity taking place. It is impossible to discern the motive of every single citizen who's chanting or marching or spray painting or breaking a window. But you no doubt have many citizens peaceably protesting the death of George Floyd and so many who came before him. What conversations are you having? What steps are you taking to help your city heal? I appreciate that. So, you know, one of the things that we did on um, Friday, after Friday, so Saturday, was to convene, our, uh, talk to 
stakeholders to glean ideas and and uh, begin to think about what we need to do to one bring the community together, try to heal, and, and to to engage. One, the healing. Process. Mayor, we we've we've lost the connection just a little bit. It's gotten. Can you a little, hear me? Ah, I can, can hear. hear yes, I can hear you now. Okay. So I'd like you to start okay. that answer over again about helping the you city bet. heal. I was saying that, you know, on Friday we started to have uh, very proactive conversations with community stakeholders and with uh, other elected leaders and even members of my own staff uh, uh, about how we can bring the community together and begin to move beyond this and heal and to build together constructive steps that will help our city. Um, Can you be specific about stakeholders? Who are you talking to? Elected officials. First of all, we talk to uh, faith-based leaders, ministerial alliance members. Uh, community civic uh, and leaders, uh, you know, from past and some of the newer, younger uh, leaders that have emerged in our city, uh, elected leaders at the state legislature, members of Congress, members of uh, the city council here in Denver, um, and, and of course, uh, members of my administration. What I was proud to see was all those stakeholders volunteer and say, we're here, we're going to help you. And, and, and you saw them hold media veils, you saw them send out tweets and say, we're here, we're ready to engage. And then I saw uh, a young cadre of uh, millennials in my administration, led by Murphy Robinson, the director of safety, who's a millennial himself, and people like Denny Glover and Quan Atlas and uh, Christian Jimenez and Jordan Sauer. These are young people whose names you may not know, but they're young millennial leaders, Michael Sapp, Barry Birch, who were in my administration, who held their own virtual demonstration. And almost 200 people from around Denver, Denver metro area got in on that chat, and they had a very raw, bold conversation, and, and, and people shared their stories, and it was about how we bring people together and some ideas were put forward. So I'm looking forward to the summary of that, and then how do we effectively uh, bring to life some of those recommendations that they have. But these were things that every member took the mantle and said, you know, I have a responsibility to help change what's happening, I'm going to do it. Mayor, I want to play a comment from your police chief, Paul Pace, and this was from Sunday. You and he were, I think, in front of City Hall. This is his protests continued in Civic Center Park. We are asking for dialogue and not destruction. We see you. We hear you. And we want to work with you for meaningful change. We acknowledge we certainly can do better. Specifically, what can Denver's law enforcement do, be doing better? Well, I think, first of all, it's not just about law enforcement, Ryan. I think that's but I'm asking about law enforcement. No, I understand it. But law enforcement cannot change by itself. But law enforcement does have a huge responsibility here. But let me, let me tell you what law enforcement has done since 2015. I just read an article this morning written by former President Barack Obama who talked about if there is to be change, it is not at the federal level. It really is at the state and local level where you have mayors who are appointing police chiefs and you have county commissioners who are, who are helping to write laws and, and, and implement laws around excessive force. If you go back to 2015, uh, following even some questionable homicides of Denver residents at the hands of our police officers, you'll see that Denver followed each one of those tragedies with actionable steps, reforming our excessive force policy, reforming uh, shooting into vehicle policy, training protocols for change. Um, we have a whole new discipline and accountability metrics as a result of some of those tragic incidents, and the collaboration and engagement of community and community activists, those who stand with and those who stand outside, uh, 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 you know, uh, you know, 
protesting and, and marching for change, we sat with them and rewrote our excessive force policies. And so that's what he's referring to, is that we'll continue to do that. We are not where we want to be, but we are a long way from where we started in 2014, 2015, as a result of that true engagement that occurred. Are you talking with officers? What are you hearing from them about this moment? Yeah, yeah, I'm having a conversation with officers. We had a conversation with officers shortly after, you know, the video became public with regards to uh, uh, George Floyd and, and the tragedy behind his murder. Um, and the discussion, uh, you know, the officers, one, wanted to stand with uh, the demonstrators, wanted to make sure they went safe, they wanted to make sure that the city, you know, we were all on the same page and make sure that the, the demonstrations went forward. And then as we, you know, as each night has occurred, we check in with the officers. They will say, you know, they have said, for the most part, the demonstrations have been positive. And then the element happens after nightfall. And, and uh, uh, you know, you know, so, the you know, most of the information that I'm aware of um, in terms of how the protests are going are coming from uh, activists who are on the street, as well as our police officers. This next question comes from a professor who was on our show Friday. Um, She says on the first night of Denver's protests, police sprayed some sort of chemical on her and others around her. Hi, this is Dr. April Alexander at the University of Denver. Most people like myself were protesting civilly, which is part of our First Amendment right. How was the city responding to video of officers firing gas, pellet, and or rubber bullets at those people, including journalists? What's your response? You know, following each one of those incidents, and again, I'm watching a lot of this either in the command center or um, by video. And, um, you know, the first question that the director of safety knows I'm going to ask is, what, what prompted that? And typically, well, typically every time it's followed by some projectile that has been, you know, directed at the officers, a brick, a boulder, a rock, a bottle, flashbang bottle. Um, and um, and they are having to respond to to demonstrate that one that's not going to be tolerated. Back it up, back it up, back it up. So they are not um, they are not proactively uh, firing tear gas into the crowd without something happening to them first. It is a reaction. Do you think that there is enough de-escalation work going on by Denver police, by the law enforcement agencies that are helping in Denver? Let me say this, uh, that the escalation or de-escalation or the whole um, tactic that is being deployed here, Ryan, is, is by, the, by the, the use of force policy that was developed jointly with the community and, uh, and the Denver Police Department and the city of Denver. Um, you know, we're trying to use the least lethal methods to quell the, the intended provocation of these uh, agitators within the crowd. Um, the first night... The officers were not even in riot gear. They were in their normal uniforms, and again, the goal was to manage the perimeter. Only after they came under assault with uh, uh, flashbang and rocks and boulders did they have to don the riot gear, which was a very difficult difficult call to make because we know it changes the entire language and the actions of a situation. Uh, but let me just say this. When you ask about appropriate uh, response, our officers... Uh, yesterday, all of the law enforcement, there were 170 arrests after curfew. Uh, seven of those uh, were a result of people carrying dangerous weapons, including guns. We have confiscated AK-47s. We've confiscated handguns, machetes, axes, uh, heavy chains, 
uh, you know, flashbang bottles, Molotov cocktails. And so people I want people to understand there is a very dangerous element embedded in these demonstrations. Our officers are trying to keep demonstrators safe. They're trying to keep themselves safe uh, when they are responding to the threats that are in the community are a part of these demonstrations. You are encouraging protesters who've been in large groups, sometimes without masks, to get tested for COVID-19 for free at the Pepsi Center later this week, I guess presumably with the idea that there's time to incubate. Uh, Right. what, What, if anything, have you heard from your public health department about what the last few days means for Denver's curve? Great deal of concern. We have worked very hard, and I say not we in terms of government, but the entire city has worked very hard to uh, to bend this epi curve and to get on the other side of it and to create a safe space where we could begin to open up our community and our economy. These protests where people are in mass, um, many some of them without face coverings, um, are are very very close proximity, and they're they're yelling and they're you know they're they're around people who are yelling in other words their mouths are open wide they are they are you know possibly transmitting the virus it's also possible that they're coughing because of the gas that officers are using possibly coughing and removing a mask as a result of the response of of uh, law enforcement so yeah it is important that people get tested uh so that we don't have another peak you know some of the businesses that have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic are also being disproportionately impacted again by these uh demonstrations that have turned violent and people who have decided made the choice and it is a choice uh to be destructive on property um you know another peak could quite frankly break a lot of businesses and 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 really uh, create a even set our economy even further back. So uh, the reality is that we want we need people to get tested, and it is free. It is at the Pepsi Center from eight to four daily. All they have to do is go to denvergov.org, register. No questions asked. Uh, we just need to get people tested. Mayor, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. As always, Ryan. Thanks for having me. That's Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock joining us live this morning. Among the people protesting in Denver this weekend, a woman named Natalia Marshall. She wasn't able to join until Saturday, two days in. Unfortunately, I haven't been out here due to the fact that I work for uh, a major hospital. So at the same time as I'm fighting for freedom, I am trying to nurse the people back to health that has COVID. I work on a COVID unit, so I've been working the COVID unit for the past week, and today I was off. Marshall carried a sign that memorialized her uncle, Michael Marshall. He died in police custody in 2015. He had schizophrenia, and after he was arrested for trespassing, he suffered a psychotic episode in Denver's jail. Deputies pinned him to the ground and placed a spit hood over his mouth. Marshall choked on his own vomit and later died in the hospital. Due to this incident, I believe, like, majority of my family do fear the cops, but at the same time are tired of this as well. Natalia Marshall stood with her fist raised as demonstrators laid down in front of the state capitol Saturday afternoon to remember George Floyd. Marshall and her family held up sunflowers. She says they were a gift from other demonstrators. Um, I leave here today still in fear. Like, I, it's not only George Floyd. Like, this happened 
so many times, and it happened to my own family member. So I honestly don't feel different. I still walk around in fear of the police. I, I mean, and it makes this worse. Like, this situation made my fear worse. It doesn't matter how many people come out and support. Those officers still have the same mentality, in my opinion. I don't think they're going to change, you know? So, no, I, I don't feel any different. I'm still scared. I'm still frustrated. I'm still pissed. I'm still angry. Like, as all the above. I have a flood of emotions, but not one of them is a good feeling, unfortunately. Michael Marshall's death in 2015 was one of a handful that led to a new use of force policy for Denver, but ultimately no one involved in Marshall's death faced any consequences. In 2017, the city reached a $4.6 million settlement with Marshall's family. The following year, Denver's Independent Monitor released a report slamming the sheriff's department for its handling of the case. It has left a lasting mark on the Marshall family. Natalia's daughter, Anaviance Essien, says she also feels somewhat jaded. Um, I've been out here since about the age of 12 or 13 fighting for the same thing, and it's been years. I'm 16 now, and it's been years of the same thing over and over back to back. Essien says that while Saturday afternoon remained peaceful, she and her family were scared there might be a clash with police, as in previous nights. When we were at the Capitol and we were marching, you can feel the mace from last night. Everybody started choking and tearing up. I was tearing up as I was walking down the street. But Essien says she believes demonstrators across the nation did achieve something. These protests and riots are making somewhat of a difference. When my uncle was killed, not one of the officers was charged, not one of them was arrested, demoted, fired, any of that. One of them actually got promoted and one got a life-saving award. Now, the fact that the officers involved in Floyd's uh, death has gotten arrested and the other one got fired, the one that stood there and watched, I feel like it is making a difference. We are getting somewhere slowly but surely and our voices are not going unheard. And I like to look at it as a glass half full. 16-year-old Anaviance Essien. We also heard from her mother, Natalia Marshall. Natalia's uncle, Michael, died after deputies pinned him to the floor of the Denver jail in 2015. The city later settled with the family. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the Democratic Senate candidates and how they see this moment in the country just weeks ahead of their primary. Plus, one family hit hard by COVID-19. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. I am humbled by the fact that people voluntarily give us money and puts a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders to give you back the best radio we can. It is an honor that people support this service and have done so for decades. I'm membership director Jason Moore. CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity.
The protests come just about a week before ballots hit the mail for the June primary. In the most high-profile contest, voters will choose which Democrat advances in the Senate race to run against incumbent Republican Cory Gardner. Over the weekend, as protests raged, the two candidates, former Governor John Hickenlooper and former House Speaker Andrew Romanoff, talked racial justice. This was at a forum organized by the Colorado People of Color Collaborative. So what did we learn about these two men and their remedies for this tumultuous time? CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland joins us. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And let's start with a question that generated two very different responses. The candidates were asked how they view the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, that was the first question in the forum. Hickenlooper's answer generated some pushback. Here's what he said. Black Lives Matter means that every life matters and and that the color of a person's skin has nothing to do with the the richness of their lives and how important uh, their place in their family, in their neighborhood, in their community, Uh, and that that every life is sacred uh, and every life deserves the protections of of, of our our system of, of public safety and our system of justice. People should not be fearful of the people that have been entrusted with their protection. Several viewers on the Facebook live stream objected to Hickenlooper's definition. One person wrote in the comment section, quote, Black Lives Matter means everybody's life matters. Nope. That term, every life matters, actually has been used by opponents uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement to dismiss it. And Rhonda Dern called Hickenlooper's All Lives Matter definition a slam. She wrote, quote, Black Lives Matter is about the love of self and African-American rights to equal justice and fairness. I'm shocked he doesn't understand this. And here is Andrew Romanoff's response to the question. To me, what Black Lives Matter means is that this country, even before its founding, has engaged in the systemic oppression of African-Americans brought here in chains, subjected to the crime of slavery, abused ever since, lynched, murdered in every way we have chosen as a nation to deny the essential humanity of our African-American brothers and sisters. And so when we say Black Lives Matter, it is not the same as saying white lives matter or all lives matter. It is instead to recognize the racism that is baked into our nation from its founding documents. Bent, I want to note that this forum was planned months ago, but again, it's especially timely because of the ongoing protests in Denver and in cities across the country. Um, Both candidates were also asked what they've done to combat systemic racism. What did we learn? Well, Hickenlooper said it all goes back to slavery. Slavery is the, the nagging, persistent shame of our country that for too long has denied the promise of America to too many of our of our citizens. And that that evolution to create two systems of justice, I mean, even after slavery, we went to Jim Crow and then forced servitude, uh, you know, institutionalized terrorism, which was what the lynchings were really all about. He also talked about Paul Childs, who was a 15-year-old developmentally disabled youth. And in 2003, shortly after Hickenlooper was elected mayor of Denver, 
a Denver police officer shot and killed Childs. Childs was holding a knife, and his family had called the police to their home for help. Hickelooper said Childs' death led to some of the most comprehensive police reform. Andrew Romanoff talked about his time working at the Southern Poverty Law Center, where he worked to help stop white supremacy. And in some ways, it was easier to see racism in that form because it wore a hood and burned a cross on your lawn. Racial injustice and uh, disparity touches all facets of life. The candidates were also asked about income inequality and housing, ways to help minority-owned small businesses. Uh, what stood out to you there, Benta? Well, and, the, and they also had some agreements in the, in the bigger picture. They were asked also about immigration reform, and, and both are on the same page there, backing the DREAM Act and giving undocumented immigrants a pathway to citizenship. And Hickenlooper said people need to recognize that the more we work together, the more coherent and focused we are as one society and the better we're going to do. And Romanoff said immigrants contribute more to the economy than they consume and commit crimes at lower rates than native-born Americans. And he said, we can't just tolerate diversity, as some people suggest. We need to celebrate it. There were some yes or no lightning round questions as well. Did we learn anything useful from those? Hickenlooper objected to answering just yes or no, and he said he'd keep his answers to a maximum of 10 seconds because he said the world doesn't work in yes or no and things can be modified. Romanoff countered that it does, especially when you're a legislator and you have to vote yes or no on policies. The candidates did um, agree on quite a few questions. Uh, They both support moving the federal minimum wage to at least $15 an hour. They back increasing taxes on corporations and the wealthiest Coloradans. They do not support the private industry, quote, profiting off the detention and incarceration of communities of color. Reflecting a bit what uh, Governor Hickenlooper said, were there answers that were just not so cut and dried then? When Hickenlooper didn't agree with something, he didn't explicitly answer no. For example, he was asked whether he supported a ban on hydraulic fracturing in Colorado. He said he supports getting Colorado to a totally clean energy economy as rapidly as humanly possible. Romanoff supports a fracking ban. Another example of that, when asked if they support abolishing ICE, Andrew Romanoff said yes. John Hickenlooper said he supports reforming ICE. Just briefly, anything else stand out to you during this forum that might help primary voters distinguish between the candidates? A lot of voters tell us health care is one of the top issues they're concerned about this election cycle. The two candidates have different approaches here. Romanoff backs single-payer universal health care. Hickenlooper says he supports universal coverage and a public option to lower costs. Benta, thanks so much for being with us. That's CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. We've requested one-on-one interviews with both candidates. We've booked Andrew Romanoff and are waiting to confirm with John Hickenlooper. The primary's June 30th. Okay, to the other major storyline affecting the country right now, that's COVID-19. It, too, reflects racial disparities in the U.S. The virus has hit Manuel Aragon's family twice His brother got it, and his uncle, Manuelito Goodwind of Greeley, died from it. That was just last week. He was 63. I reached Manuel, who's a writer, at his Denver home. Thank you for being with us. Oh, no problem. I'm happy to join you. Were you named for Manuelito? Yeah, so it was named after my grandfather, Manuel, and my uncle, Manuelito. 
and tell us about him. You know, growing up, everybody has that uncle who is like the essence of cool. And for me, that was my uncle Manuelito. He was just like that essence of cool, you know. It's one thing when you kind of like look at your parents and they're kind of the rule setters. And then you have your aunts and uncles, your tios and tias, and they push a little bit at those rules. And my uncle was like a jokester and had a very dry sense of humor. And so to be like seven years old and he's giving you like these really deadpan jokes. <laughs> like in the mid 80s, he had a really cool car. It was a Pontiac Trans Am. And my, my grandma, he'd come visit her pretty frequently while we were over there. And he would park it around the corner and just, oh, well, I had, had to walk today. Well, why, why'd you walk? Well, you know, my car got stolen. And then he would have like this whole story that he had concocted. And he would let it linger for a couple of hours and like, well, I got to go. Oh, well, well, how are you getting home? Oh, I parked my car around the corner. <laughs> You, you talk about him being cool, and there's this picture of him standing with a horse in blue jeans, a red t-shirt with this eagle soaring on the front. He's got short sleeves rolled up, you know, a bit like James Dean, this great mane of hair that's longer than the horse's. Say a few words about this photo, which I think you tweeted. Yeah, yeah, I, I tweeted it, and I had posted it on Facebook, too, and it's such a vivid image for me. My mom said it on the morning that he passed. And I didn't realize how much just kind of that image of him was burned in my head. You know, as he got older, like one of the things that's interesting, I guess, about Latinidad, you know, your Latinx identity is comprised of all these different facets. And I think for us growing up, one of the, and for my uncle as well, one of the facets that we were really disconnected from were indigenous roots. And so as he got older, he really started to reconnect and explore that. And, you know, that photo that you describe of him with a horse and his tattoo on his arm and his sleeves rolled up. And the tattoo that you mentioned there, it's almost like a totem. Yeah, and that whole combination of things combined with his just kind of gentle spirit and laughter, it made like, oh, I, I want to be like that. Because, you know, no, nothing seemingly got to him. He was just so calm, cool, and collected. But then also compassionate. What's an example of the compassion? Yeah, so my, my uncle worked in a lot of community agencies throughout Denver. And one year we hosted Thanksgiving at our house. Over the course of that full day, you know, my uncle occupied like one table and probably had about 20 to 30. Uh, at this time, they were adults, but they had been students that he had worked with. And it was really just amazing to see the impact he had had on so many people. When he showed up at my house and he's like, I hope you don't mind that I invited, you know, some of my sons and daughters to stop by today. Just just a few. When in actuality, you know, it ended up being like 20, 25 people. Wow. How were his last few weeks and days? So he was admitted to the hospital about a week before he passed. And 
I, I think the thing that makes me exceptionally sad is how alone his last days feel to me from being on the outside. We, we as a family have come together in so many ways w- when other family members have passed and we're able to be at the hospital and be with the person and grieve with them. And the most that we could do was talk to him via telephone. You know, I had talked to him the morning before he passed. He was on a respirator he was struggling to breathe. We had about a five-minute conversation, and he still was very much concerned with me and my family and how we were doing. <laughs> you know, I asked him how he was doing, and he was like, oh, you know, not great. But more importantly, how, how are Sarah and the kids doing with all of this? Hmm. It, was, it was kind of a through line in his life that he was very much concerned with just the well-being of others. He died in the hospital? Yeah, he, he died in the hospital. It's one of those things, like, I, I don't know who was there with him when he passed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know that my mom and my brothers and myself found out about it kind of collectively probably about 20 minutes after he passed. It's a difficult time to be mourning. And, you know, I had a friend reach out, and they were talking about this very, like, in this time, what people are going through is this, it's called, you know, ambiguous loss and grief Hmm. and you have the loss, but you then you can't have like the physical manifestation of it because you can't necessarily have the funeral. You can't be together. You can't be at the hospital experience those last moments. And it, I guess it was good to have words to put to it. Naming it. Yeah. Ambiguous. Ambiguous is such a good word for it. Huh? It is. And you work with words, so it it makes a lot of sense to me that you would be comforted by having a label for this kind of weird grief. You tweeted, it's a weird time to acknowledge death because we can't really physically come together as a family to celebrate his life, to mourn together, to hold each other, to cry together, to laugh about the jokes he used to tell, and remind one another just how much he loved us all. Do you know how he might have caught Coronavirus, COVID-19? Yeah, we, we suspect. So he lived in Greeley, and he lived in a lower-income lower apartment, and a lot of his neighbors worked like in meatpacking plants just outside of Greeley. So what we suspect and what his doctors suspect is that he probably just picked it up somewhere around his apartment complex. Um, he had been fairly careful trying to stay in as much as possible, but had made kind of like his uh, essentials, grocery trips and things like that. We know, of course, that there are racial disparities with COVID-19. Of those with the disease, identified with the disease, 36.4% are Hispanic. And yet the Colorado's Hispanic population is about 21.7%. So it's just like a much higher percentage of Hispanic folks with this disease. There have been lots of theories as to why this is true, that, you know, this is about existing health disparities, that disproportionately these are essential workers, and because of culture and income, Hispanic folks may be living in closer quarters. Do you have a view on this? Yeah, I, I think it's probably all those things that you mentioned. So my uncle was the second member of our family to actually catch COVID. And one of my older brothers 
is an essential worker working in a nursing home in Wheat Ridge. He had it self-quarantined for 10 to 14 days. His symptoms were fairly mild. And my brother is an essential worker. My uncle lived among essential workers. And, and I think both my brother catching it and uncle catching it, just off of what we know, it kind of felt inevitable. Hmm. It kind of felt inevitable. Gosh. Uh, You're a writer. You're on staff at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver. You're a documentary filmmaker, creator of the web series, Welcome to the North Side, which is described as a comedic take on gentrification and Latino displacement in North Denver. I thought we might listen to just, (laughs) just a snippet of that. Does the dream weekend include eating menudo at your grandma's house on a Sunday morning after a lowrider show at La Raza Park? If so, my barrio friend, Denver's north side is the neighborhood for you. If you ever have the balls to call the hood the highlands, I'm revoking your north side card. But straight up, when they start changing the names of neighborhoods and that's when you know it's over. Here come the beards, breweries, and dude bros. It's clear that the pandemic is exacerbating the economic and health disparities that existed beforehand. What are your concerns about how that affects Latinx people in Colorado? I think one of my biggest fears is that we're, we're going to continue to see the displacement grow as COVID impacts families of color, especially Latinx communities. I think one of the things I expected from this was that the housing uh, market would maybe slow down in Denver and give people a chance to kind of catch up in a way that it hasn't in you know, the past 12 years since the recession. And I think one of the things that we are seeing is that I think it's speeding up even more as as we walk through the neighborhood we are seeing houses still continue to go on the market houses get knocked down and I feel like before the pandemic there, there were still facets of Denver that reminded me of what a lot of us call old Denver and I'm afraid that when we return to whatever sense of normalcy exists after this, it's going to feel a lot like heartbreak as the city that we know and love um, becomes even more unrecognizable to us. Are you thinking of what businesses survive and, and, and who gets homeownership and who gets to stay and who has to leave? Yeah, I think that's a huge piece for me. Um, A few weeks ago, on a Zoom call with friends, you know, we we started just going through these businesses that we know, that we love, that we frequent. Are they going to be okay? The owners, the friends that we've made through them, are they going to be okay? Or is it going to further impact, you know, the, the number of Latinx business owners and Latinx homeowners is it going to continue to chip away at those things? And, and I, my fear is that it will. And, you know, I, th- I think for a lot of us, we, we've been actively trying to, in small ways, make sure that we support those communities and those businesses as much as we can during these times. It's a lot of loss to grapple with 
it's like really close loss familially, and then it's a wider loss potentially in the community. Yeah, no, it, it, it is a lot. I've been thinking about this as well. My parents sold uh, the neighborhood home that I grew up in about two years ago, and it got knocked down about this time two years ago. And I think for so many people of color and Latinx people who grew up in the community, we are going to have to navigate kind of the micro and macro levels of loss. Because it's one thing to lose your family. But then how do you how do you mourn when your community is also not there to mourn with? I want to thank you for being with us. And I'm really sorry for your loss. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And thank you for having me on. Writer and filmmaker Emmanuel Aragon, remembering his uncle Manuelito Goodwind of Greeley, who died last week of COVID-19. He was 63. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The biggest story of 2020 was supposed to be the election. Well, 2020 had other plans. But the elections are still going on. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and more than a thousand of you helped guide our reporting at CPR News ahead of the presidential primary. Now we're asking you to do it again. Fill out a short survey online about what matters to you this election year. You'll help decide what CPR News asks candidates in the weeks and months ahead. Find the survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. The state's restaurant industry has been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. Reopening to in-person dining is symbolic in many ways. We sent reporters out to restaurants across the state to see what the first week has looked like. I'm Haley Sanchez. I'm in Larimer Square in downtown Denver, and I'm talking with folks at Rioja about what their first week of reopening has been like. Actually, just seeing a few people even walking around downtown is nice. To see Larimer Square empty has been weird. That's Jennifer Jasinski, one of the owners. We want to just be here, serve our guests, give them a great night, let them forget about all the crap that's happening. And let Jasinski forget about having to close her other restaurant because of the pandemic. She says so far, Rioja has been a little quieter than it was before. Lane Garwood of Denver is here with his family. He thinks dining out is actually somewhat safer than going grocery shopping. I only have one person come up to the table. They're wearing a mask, sometimes gloves. When you go to the grocery store, you have to kind of bob and weave through people. Diners are sitting far away from one another, and some seem unsure about when is the right time to remove their mask or whether they can walk by other people to use the bathroom. But Garwood says he didn't realize what a big part of his life dining was until the pandemic hit. We've been very excited for tonight, um, Friday night, to come out to Rioja. It is back to normal. Um, it's therapeutic. In Denver, I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. Reopening in this new reality takes some hustle. Here in Colorado Springs, the city is allowing restaurants to add extra tables outside for the time being if the neighbors are okay with it. In this case, the neighbor is the Colorado Springs Housing Authority, Deputy Director Paul Spencer. Uh, Apparently they're trying to add some additional seating out here. They are the couple who run Odyssey Gastropub, right next door to one of the authority's buildings. Jenny Sherman, co-owner. Tyler Sherman, co-owner. Indoor, occupancy is capped at 50% of normal right now. So as many seats as we can get outside, so long as we can maintain our distance, that's, you know, that's going to be huge for us. That will double our capacity. And the housing authority seems okay with that, provided the Shermans can maintain privacy for residents of the nonprofit. Just one block north of here, downtown, the Wild Goose Meeting House is open for guests for the first time since the pandemic. 
Co-owner Russ Ware says for the past couple of months, it's been a ghost town around here. As things have begun to change, it has just come to life. It's not normal, but it is. it feels okay. It doesn't feel strange. It feels good. The Wild Goose already has expansive outdoor seating. At a table in the shade of an umbrella, Connor and Valerie Worth are taking in some brunch. A bacon, egg, and cheese burrito, and... A vegan hummus burrito. They're actually on vacation from New Hampshire. Yeah, a trip planned long before coronavirus. They waited for weeks with fingers crossed. It seemed like everything started to reopen, so we were like, let's go. (laughs) Nearby, teachers Amanda Gasco and Katie Smith came here for a work meeting. It's local. We wanted to support local, so I think that's why we chose here this morning. And they have a patio. (laughs) I'm Dan Boyce outside the Wild Goose Meeting House in Colorado Springs. I'm Stina Sieg in Grand Junction, and I'm here at this 50s diner. It's called Main Street Cafe. It's right in the heart of town, and they've got eight tables set up at their patio. Only one is busy. But it's just the afternoon lull. The restaurant has had some busier times in recent weeks, after Mesa County got permission to resume dine-in service earlier than most of the state. May 16th was my first day back since we had to shut down. Server Holly Stanley and her co-workers were out of a job for nearly two months after the cafe closed entirely. It just wasn't profitable as a to-go business. While Stanley wanted to get back to work, she was worried how the public would react to the restaurant's social distancing rules. And I was concerned because I've heard a lot of scary stories about people getting hurt and and getting in arguments and stuff, and I didn't want to be, like, the enforcer, you know, of this. But with the exception of one person who walked out, Stanley says the safety steps haven't bothered customers, especially not the regulars. They were so stoked that we were open and really didn't care what they had to do uh, to get one of our burgers or to have our green chili. They were like, whatever you need me to do, mask, uh, you know, whatever, I'll do it. Can I get a burger? In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg. And that's Colorado Matters from CPR News. You can follow us at Colorado Matters. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner.